0: Okay, um, big questions. How many of you have heard about the big questions of life? Right, we all talk about the big questions. What are some of the big questions of life? I've heard a lot of people say a lot of things about questions. Some are like, why is abbreviation such a long word? Um, Do moles have little people on their faces? I don't know. Who was the beta testers for preparations A through G? I don't know. Um, if love is blind, then why is lingerie so popular? And uh, why do my garbage always weigh more than my groceries did? I, I've, I've had a hard time figuring that one out. Those, those aren't the big questions of life, of course. When we talk about those big questions, we mean worldview questions, things that really matter. Um, is there a God? Where do we get our morality from? How do we shape morality? Why is there evil? Why are we here? What is our purpose in life? How do we find it? How should we interact with other people? All of these questions have their roots in belief systems, in worldviews. How you answer how you interact with other people, what our morality should be, is a reflection on how you believe the world works and how we integrate with God. So therefore, questions of theology, questions of religious faith, are important questions because they affect all matters of our existence. Karl Mosser and Paul Owen, Karl Mosser will be presenting uh, later in the conference, had written, If the God of, of Mormonism did not create all the universe but merely fashioned it out of pre-existing matter, and he did not create the most basic and elemental part of man, but man existed eternally alongside God, then the ramifications of such a view are immense, for it undercuts the very foundation of God being God and for God being all the source of morality. So you can see that even a view like Mormonism has implications for who God is and why we hold to it. So what I want to do is I want to take you through three main concepts about how to deal with a cultist when they come to your door. Uh, I want to talk about before you hear the knock at the door, there's some things you have to do. And then when you hear that knock, what do we say? And finally, um, how do we deal with the, the, uh, the, the people after the knock is completed, so to speak? And we'll, we'll take a little bit of time to talk about some, I wanna give you some specific tools that you can use uh, in discussing issues with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Of course, I can't cover all of those aspects because uh, I just simply don't have the time. But uh, we do have materials out on, in the book area on that or you can go to my website, www.comreason.org, and you can order some more extended talks specifically on those, uh, those uh, different belief systems as well as many others. We, comereason.org, just as a side commercial, uh, we have a good 150 articles on, on topics ranging from existence of God, morality, Uh, science questions, uh, cultural issues. Uh, We have a podcast that's been rated one of the top podcasts of apologetics that we put out every week, and there's all kinds of stuff there that you can find. Okay, well, how do we answer the cultist at our door? Before we hear the knock, there's certain things that we should do as good Christian believers. First of all, you need to understand what you believe. You need to understand what it is you believe and what historic Christianity teaches. Now, I'm using that term very specifically whenever I'm talking with, say, a member of the LDS church. I always use the phrase historic Christianity because they believe that they're orthodox. See, they don't believe that they're wrong. They believe that they're part of the restored gospel that was lost after the apostolic age. So when I talk about Christianity, I always use the phrase historic Christianity because for the 1,800 years of its existence, first 1,800 years, this is what Christianity had always believed. So you need to know things like, what is the nature of God? Did God begin to exist or has he always existed? Does he have a body or is he an immaterial spirit? What is the nature of the atonement? How is it that we are saved? What is this thing that we talk about when we talk about the salvation of Christ? What are the facts of the resurrection? And I'm sure in some of these other breakout sections you can get very, very good information on some of those things, but they're important to know. Understand what it is you believe about uh, Christianity and what it teaches. Also, Know how you should respond. You should understand some key differences that are going to come up in your conversation, okay? When a um, hockey team or a baseball team is practicing, what they will do is they will put themselves in different disadvantageous scenarios so they can be aware of what they should do if such a scenario exists. Well, we have to at least mentally do the same. You know, what does our... um, our challenger believe about their scriptures or about the Bible. What do they believe about God, Jesus, mankind, salvation? And those are important so that you know what you believe, but you also know how it differs from them. Uh, and that's a, that's a key point. But lastly, before you hear the knock, I, I want you to keep an attitude of thanksgiving. You need to stay intimate in your walk with Christ. This is probably the most important point. I turn to Colossians chapter four. And in verse two, I think the Apostle Paul does a very good job of summing this up, when he says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping an alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word. See, Paul wants a door opened as well so he can begin a conversation. So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourself in wisdom toward the outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Isn't this exactly what we're talking about? Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Amen. This should be our prayer when we are getting ready to have this discussion with uh, these uh, fellow uh, souls who are seeking the truth. So, devote yourselves to prayer. Become familiar with your Bible. Make it your best friend. There's an old adage that the folks in Scotland Yard uh, who are in charge of uh, finding counterfeit bills would for the first Uh, sessions of training never take their new recruits and show them counterfeits. What they would do is uh, they would have them for weeks on end feel, handle, work with real money. Because counterfeits there can be a thousand and one variations. But once you're so familiar with the real that any time a counterfeit passes your hands you know it immediately. So you don't have to be so adept at a 1,001 variations. You have to be very adept, though, at understanding the real. And that's how you will spot a counterfeit. Similarly, counterfeit gods, counterfeit belief systems, you need to know the real. You need to be aware of the Bible, be familiar with that book, so that you can spot the counterfeit. Okay, so some prep time is in order. But what happens when you hear the knock? Well, before we answer the door, there's some things that we really have to think about. Now, this may take a few seconds, a few moments, but I really want you to remember a couple of things. First of all, understand that these are people you're talking to. These aren't, you know, adversaries in a video game or a chessboard. These are living, breathing souls whom Christ died for, who have desires, who have passions who have relationships. And you are going to approach them as much as they're trying to approach you and say what you currently hold is not true. Now that's a big deal. You're not just trying to make them believe in the right way, you're actually shaking the way they view the world. Okay, I want you to think about that for a minute. When I talk to someone, say, out of the LDS church, I realize that if he holds to what I, what I teach him, if, if he believes in historic Christianity, then that means he has to believe, say, his grandparents are in hell. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses have to... I mean, imagine if somebody came up to you and, and gave you a very compelling belief system, but it meant that you couldn't celebrate Christmas anymore. You know, Christmas is wrong, it's evil, right? You can see that you're not just abandoning an idea, you're abandoning the very way you live, your traditions as you grew up. The people that you grew closest to, you can't do some of those things anymore. It's a big deal. So understand that there are people that you're talking to. And secondly, listen to them. You know, Christians, a lot of times, we get into a conversation and we say something, they start to respond, and then what do we do? We're starting to go through our Rolodex of answers for that issue with our next you know, killer Bible verse. Right, we're not listening to actually how they're responding to us. We're just getting ready to spit back our next defeater for whatever it is they say. Sometimes, it might be a better issue before you even start, maybe let them do their spiel and say, well, why do you believe this? Can you tell me what it is about your faith that is compelling for you? What is it that makes you personally attracted to this belief system? See, now you've taken it out of the realm of if he says this, I say that in response. And by the way, they're programmed kind of to do the same thing when they go door to door. But you want to have a conversation with them. You just don't want to do tit for tat. You want to, again, talk to them. What makes you believe this? What is it about your faith that's compelling? Uh, You know what? I had a guy and his son come to my door. It was a July morning. And I said, wow, you know, it's kind of warm out there. Would you like to sit down and have a glass of lemonade? And, you know, he'd probably been doing this for two, two and a half hours, and that took him aback. And he said, that would be great. We're hot out here, we're in ties, and we got to sit down at the kitchen table, and now all of a sudden, we're not toe-to-toe as adversaries. We're sitting around the table a little bit more like friends. Now we can start engaging each other in a little bit more open, um, open dialogue. Conduct yourselves with wisdom, as my passage in Colossians says. Uh, this is an important point Not only do you remember that they're people, but also know that they're going to try to control the conversation. And you have to be careful in how you develop the conversation with them. So you have to conduct yourselves with wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge properly applied. That's how I define wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge properly applied. One of the things that I I warn folks of is to make sure you define your terms. We don't want to lapse into Christian ease, right? oh, I was saved by the blood of the Lamb, washed by this, you know, I'm part of the saints, and I'm heading to glory. Hallelujah. And people are going like, what? Or if they're Mormons, the Mormon may come up to you and say, I was saved by grace, I was baptized into his church, and I believe that uh, I am going to be one day redeemed by Jesus. They will affirm all those things. The problem is the Mormon church has poured new meanings into many of those ideas. For example, a Mormon will affirm that he's born again. What does that mean? That means he was baptized and confirmed into the Mormon church. That's what born again is understood in, in the LDS. Atonement. The Mormons believe in atonement. That means that Jesus canceled out Adam's sin, Adam's original sin only. It doesn't mean that he paid for all sins. Eternal life. Mormon will tell you that he, he's, he has eternal life. He will be at one day elevated to the celestial kingdom for faithful Mormons. That's what eternal life means to Mormons. And it goes on and on. Salvation by grace is the universal resurrection of all people, not necessarily to the highest heaven, but it's just universal uh, resurrection. Repentance in, in Mormon theology means giving up on alcohol, tobacco, coffee, tea, paying tithes, and living a moral life. Uh, The Gospel, according to Mormons, is a system of laws or New Testament rites. And the Godhead, the Mormons will affirm that they hold to the Godhead, but they mean three individual beings, Father, Son, and Spirit as three separate beings, not the Trinity. The Holy Ghost is a man made out of spiritual matter, but the Holy Spirit is a divine communication system. Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit have different terms in Mormon theology. Matter has existed eternally. It was not created by God. It was merely shaped by God. And spirit is a more refined matter while physical body is a less refined matter. So you can see that your terms matter. And what I try to do is, again, I try to avoid the religious cliches and and sometimes uh, uh, just a great question to ask is what do you mean by that? Exactly how does that work? Please, can you explain that to me a little bit more so you can get some clarity along the way? Okay, so you need to conduct yourselves with wisdom. You need to speak forth the mysteries of Christ, as Paul says in our chapter. When we talk about speaking forth the mysteries of Christ, I mean we need to confine our conversations to essential issues the resurrection, the deity of Christ, and salvation. That's where I would say you wanna keep your focus. You can talk about uh, you know, blood transfusions with Jehovah's Witnesses, should they celebrate birthdays. You can talk about uh, you know, a lot of things like that, but those are really peripheral issues. Those aren't the meat and potatoes that we're on to try and achieve. We want to get to the fundamentals because those are the more important issues. And once the fundamentals are established, the secondary issues will really fall into play, place. Now, you have to be careful. You don't want to get sidetracked on red herrings or rabbit trails, and you should know ahead of time that many times you start uh, getting into a conversation, and all of a sudden, everybody's flipping through the Bible back and forth. Well, what about this? It says this. Then what about that? It says that. And then over there in this verse, it says this. I understand that sometimes we need to use multiple verses in order to support a point, but just like... um, you know, just like we, I use GPS to get here tonight. I had an end route in mind. I put in the end destination. And then Google Maps or my GPS asks me, in what way do you want? Do you want to drive? Do you want to take the BART? Do you want to walk? Do you want to take the bus? How would you like to get there? But the end point is always in mind. And whatever, so if we know our end point, we can make a clear route given our strengths. But don't get sidetracked. Don't start, you know, it's easy to get off on a tangent and it's easy to lose our lose our perspective, especially when passions get high. So we wanna conduct ourselves with wisdom, we wanna speak forth the mysteries of Christ. But we also wanna ask them for reasons for their faith. Now, uh, in the broader context, it's pretty interesting that um, Christians tend to be those who take the brunt of proof on their shoulders. How many of you have had this kind of experience? You're at work? or at a family gathering, or at school, and someone approaches you and says, well, if there's a God, if Christianity is true, if you believe the Bible, then what about this, 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 and this, right? And what do we do? Well, we start talking about, you know, 5,710 manuscript evidence that have been found, and we can compare that to Homer's Odyssey, and we start start giving our apologetic, right? And then, well, what about this? And what about, and all of a sudden, We're crushed by all these questions, and we're playing defense. Well, the reason-giving game goes both ways. And you can ask a person, well, what about you? You know, where are the gold plates that Joseph Smith supposedly translated? Did he even need them? I was having an interesting discussion just the other day. Joseph Smith supposedly translated the Book of Mormon by putting a seeing stone into a hat, covering his face in it. It would show him a word. He would tell it to Martin Harris, who would write it down. Well, is that translating a set of gold plates? Do the gold plates even need to be there? Or is that just kind of, you don't even need the plates if you're seeing the word and just saying it to somebody else. You're not translating, you're, you're getting a revelation straight from the hat. Right? So there's questions that we can ask them. There's, there's, there's issues, you know, if you start talking about evolution. Well, evolution has proven the Bible is false. Really? And and evolution, where did you hear about evolution? Well, I learned, you know, everybody knows about evolution. You learn about it in school. Okay, well, which kind of evolution are you talking about? There are several competing theories out there. Punctuated equilibria, steady state. You know, what kind of evolution do you mean? Now, most people who are not sophisticated in this genre will say, well, I don't know, just regular evolution. I'm not interested in the details. I just learned it from my teachers. Okay, so you're taking it on faith. So what makes your position any better than mine? Right? Makes sense. Okay, so before you hear the knock, prepare. When you hear the knock, reflect that these things may be coming up and know that you have strategies that you can employ and be on guard in case someone starts trailing away. Know that you have a destination you wish to reach. Know that all of these things are are going to be part of the dynamic of the discussion but answering those that are at your door. Say we're talking about uh, a member of the Watchtower Society who comes and, uh, and visits you. Well, let me give you a few of the basic beliefs of the Jehovah's Witnesses so you can understand that. First of all, you have a little bit of, of uh, leverage with the Jehovah's Witnesses because they hold to the same history and the same authority of the Bible as you do, for the most part. I mean, they would hold to their new world translation as the more accurate translation. They believe that most Christian Bibles have been uh, corrupted with what they call a Trinitarian bias in translation. But they do hold the Bible as the authoritative word of God. So we at least have a stepping stone there that we can both appeal to scriptures. Matter of fact, if you appeal to the New World Translation, you can do actually uh, a very good job of it. So for example, uh, about God, you know, let me give you first the idea of what they hold to with God. They believe that there is one solitary being from all eternity, Jehovah God, who is the creator and the preserver of the universe of all things visible and invisible. Jesus was not God. Jesus is, quote, the Word or Logos. He is a God, a mighty God, the beginning of creation. of And his active agent is the creation of all things. The Logos was made human as a man, as the man Jesus and suffered death to produce the ransom or redemptive price for obedient men. The man Jesus Christ, and these are all quotes coming out of Watchtower literature, by the way. The man Jesus Christ was resurrected a divine spirit creature and offered as a ransom for obedient men. He had returned to earth invisibly in A.D. 1914. He's expelled Satan from heaven and is currently proceeding to overthrow Satan's organization, establish a theocratic millennial kingdom, and vindicate the name of Jehovah God. He did not return in physical form and is invisible as the Logos. That's what they hold to about Jesus. They believe that man was created in the image of Jehovah but willfully sinned. Hence, all men are sinners or of the earth. Those who follow Jesus Christ faithfully to the death will inherit the heavenly kingdom with him. The soul of man, though, is not eternal. It is mortal, and it can die. Animals likewise have souls, though man has a preeminence by special creation. But when man dies, his soul stops uh, existing, and God will, um, in salvation, men of goodwill who accept Jehovah and his theocratic rule will enjoy the new earth. God will recreate them. He will put them back together from his memory. All others who reject Jehovah will be annihilated. Hell, meaning a place of fiery torment where sinners remain after death until the resurrection does not exist. This is a doctrine of organized religion and not the Bible. Hell is the common grave of mankind, literally Sheol, where the departed sleep until their resurrection by Jehovah God. An eternal punishment is a punishment or a penalty of which there is no end. So in other words, you are dead, you cease to exist for eternity. Annihilation is the second death, and death and the lot of those who reject Jehovah God are eternal. Okay, there's their statements. Now, how do we deal with this? Well, what about the nature of God and the Trinity? This is a tough issue, and a lot of people will start arguing about John 1:1, 1, 1. and you know, is the word God or is the word a God? I don't know if you've ever been in these conversations. The Watchtower, uh, the New World Translation, I should say, puts the letter a in John 1:1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the word was a God, not the God, a God, a mighty God, like God, as I said, but not God. Okay, how do we deal with this? Well, I never argue John 1.1 1, 1 with a Jehovah's Witness. I'm not a Greek scholar, but neither are they. So if they start quoting grammatical rules about the use of a, a you know, indefinite article during a, it's not worthwhile because nobody knows what they're talking about at that point. I always argue John 1.3. And that's an interesting issue because usually, as a matter of fact, I've never come up against a a Jehovah's Witness who's heard it before. So if you turn with John 1-3 with me, and I'll give you a little example of how this works. Okay, let's say we can't agree on John 1-1. What about John 1-3? And I'll have them read it out of the New World Translation, by the way. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Now it sounds like a lawyer wrote this, but what does that mean? Well, John is being very specific here. He's saying that there's two kinds of stuff out there. There's stuff that came into being, we call that created stuff, stuff that has a beginning, and there's stuff that didn't come into being. We call that non-created stuff, eternal stuff, stuff that doesn't have a beginning. John says anything that came into being, anything in this bucket, Jesus put there, right? He created, it says, all things came into being through him. Jesus put everything in the bucket of stuff that was created that was ever put there. And nothing was put there that he did not create. It's emphasized twice. So if Jesus put everything in this bucket, where is Jesus? Can he be part of the created world in John 1, 3? Absolutely not. He has to be part of the uncreated so John 1.3 to me is an airtight way of arguing the eternal existence of Jesus. And if Jesus is uncreated, we have a word for that. God, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses' own destination. Of course, Hebrews 1.6, they have a difficulty with too. Let all the uh, creatures bow down and worship him. They've recently changed that to redo obeisance, but notice that that's there. The resurrection of Jesus' body. Again, we're talking about the Trinity, we're talking about the resurrection, we're talking about salvation. Uh, Resurrection of Jesus' body, John chapter two, verses 19 through 21. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. It took us 46 years to build this temple, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. And they usually will say, nowhere does it say Jesus was raised bodily. Oh yes, it does. Right there in John chapter two, it's very clear. Um, the promised coming of Christ. Uh, of course, you know, the, the, the witnesses have had a really difficult time with this. The 1889 issue of The Time is at Hand states that, quote, page 101 of the 1889 issue of The Time is at Hand, the battle of the great day of God Almighty, Revelation 16 14, which will end in AD 1914 with the complete overthrow of the earth's present rulership, has already commenced. So this 1914 prediction was Christ's final coming, but 1914 came and Jesus didn't seem to overthrow the kingdoms of the earth. The Watchtower then predicted Christ would return in 1925. The 1918 issue of Millions Now Living Will Never Die states, therefore we may be confidently expect 1925 will mark the return of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the faithful prophets of old. This proved to be another false prophecy. They've done this several times. Uh, They have um, many ways, the last time they really set a date for Christ's return was 1975. In 1968, uh, the August 15th issue of Why Are You Looking Forward to 1975 says, Uh, in page 494, that Christ will return. Of course, he didn't show up. Uh, Many left the the watchtower at that time, but you can show that there's been a consistent um, failure on the part of the Jehovah's Witnesses to to kind of deliver on this promise. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'll get to that in a little bit, but know that There's some problems with their theology and and that's a good wedge that you can start to discuss with with folks, I should say. Okay, so you can get some familiarity with uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, know how to discuss a little bit on the Trinity, know how to discuss a little bit on the resurrection, know how to discuss a little bit about what it means for Christ to come back. Mormons are a far different animal Although they both uh, generate in, actually have their origins in the burned over district in the early 1800s of upper state New York, Mormonism has kind of a secondary mythology to it about the ancient peoples, both the Jaredites and the Nephites and Lamanites, who lived in ancient America. The Jaredites left the Tower of Babel around 2250 BC, crossed westward through Europe and immigrated to Central America. While later, a second emigration, uh, right before the Babylonian captivity, you had uh, a a large group of people left Israel, about 600 B.C., righteous Jews led by Nephi, and uh, part of the ten lost tribes of Israel migrate to America. Um, All of a sudden, the, 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 the tribes kind of break into two different factions. You have the righteous Nephites, and you have the evil kind of Lamanites, who were cursed with dark skin, and, uh, and that apostasy divides them. Ultimately, the, the evil Lamanites overthrow the righteous Nephites with um, Mormon burying these gold plates so that his, the memory of all this will live on. Supposedly, Jesus, when he talks about the other sheep in John, He's talking about appearing to these people on the American continent, preaching salvation to the Nephites, he institutes communion and baptism, and that's how the Mormons can restore the church that Jesus teached, uh, Jesus originally instituted, because all of the communion, baptism, temple rites were instituted in America, and although the church, Israel, and Europe lost those rites, they were preserved in these plates on the Book of Mormon, and that's how... Um, that's how the Mormons come to understand those kinds of issues. So, what do they hold to, though? Nature of God. Well, Father and Son are resurrected men with physical bodies. God the Father and Jesus Christ are both men. If you go into a Mormon temple today, you will see a stained glass window or some a painting or something like that of both Father and Son. Sometimes they're appearing to Joseph Smith in the first vision, things like that, but there are two guys not one. Uh, The Holy Ghost is a separate man. He doesn't have a physical body. He has a spiritual body, but there are three totally separate gods. God is married, has a wife, produces spirit children, and there are other gods for other worlds. The biggest difference between Mormonism and Christianity is the concept of eternal progression. Eternal progression. The idea that there is a kind of a law to the universe that allows you to develop and grow to the point where you may become God. Uh, the famous couplet that Lorenzo Snow, fifth prophet of the LDS Church, proclaimed is, As man is now, God once was. As God now is, man may be. That was in Ensign Magazine February 1982, if you want to take a look at it. That means every worthwhile male, according to the standard of Mormonism, will become a god and rule over their own planet. What about the girls? (laughs) What happens to them? Well... That question was answered by Joseph Fielding Smith, the 10th prophet of the church, and he said, the Father has promised us, this is a quote, the Father has promised us that through our faithfulness we shall be blessed with the fullness of his kingdom. In other words, we will have the privilege to become like him. To become like him, we must have all the powers of Godhood. Thus a man and his wife, when glorified, will have spirit children who will eventually go on an earth like this one we're in and pass through the same kind of experiences being subject to mortal conditions and if faithful then they also will receive the fullness of exaltation and partake of the same blessings. There is no end to this development. It will go on forever. We will become gods and have jurisdiction over the world, and these worlds will be peopled by our own offspring, and we will have an endless eternity for this. So they see, you know, it's kind of like the, the um, you know, you'll tell two friends, and then they'll tell two friends, and then so on, and then so on. You know, you'll have some gods, and then they'll have some gods, and then so on, and so on all, for all eternity. That's what they hold to. Uh, they believe that Jesus is literally our elder brother born to heavenly parents in the premortal life. And uh, basically Jesus, Lucifer, and all of us are of the same spiritual species. Okay? God is a resurrected physical man, is the literal father of Jesus. He actually had physical relations and conceived Jesus on earth. That's, uh, Mormons believe that Matthew 1.18 is an error, and you can check Mormon doctrine, pages 546 and 547 on that one. Of course, because of that, they believe that everybody was in existence prior to being on Earth. We've all existed material, but spirits are just a, as I said, a fine version of the material, and then we receive um, material bodies. About salvation, Mormons will tell you that the fall, if they're theologically astute, will tell you that the fall was actually a blessing. It brought mortality, the ability to have children and physical death so that this process of eternal progression can kind of kick off. If Adam never fell, then he'd never be able to work his way through Mormon rites and exalt himself to godhood. This is from Doctrines of Salvation, volume one, page 111 to 116. Supposedly, Adam was given conflicting commandments and he was supposed to fall in God's plan. Okay, so you can see that there's some confusion here. Sin is a part of man's basic nature. Uh, but it's uh, not a part of man's basic nature, but sins are actually just specific acts. And heaven, of course, is divided into three kingdoms, the celestial, the terrestrial, and the telestial. Almost everybody gets eventually put into one of these three slots. Even if you go to hell for a time, it's like jail. You get out, and then you'll probably fit in on the lowest of the three rungs of heaven. So that's the, that's the concept uh, that Mormons hold to. They've got a backstory, and they've got their, their doctrines. Um, how do we answer Mormons? Well, there's Mormons, when, when we do our apologetics mission strip, take kids to Salt Lake City and interact with Mormons, uh, Mormons, you will always basically lapse into the, well, the Holy Spirit revealed it to me. The witness of the Holy Spirit makes me affirm the Book of Mormon because the Book of, I know the Book of Mormon is true because I had this, we, we call it the burning in the bosom. I, they're actually shying away from that phrase because it's been overused. But, but the, the Holy Spirit confirmed it to me in my heart, is the, what you would say. And, and this is a, a difficult um, difficult idea to get around. We have to ask them certain things, like, which is more reliable, the Bible or feelings? You know, have you ever had a feeling that was untrue? Heck, let's ask this. You know, I think the new Twilight movie's coming out tonight, isn't that Right? How many of you know 12-year-old girls who are in love with Edward? I'm in love with him, Mom. I'm in love with him. I have to meet him. I would just die if I did. You're not in love with him. I know I'm in love with him. You can't tell me how I feel, right? Have you heard these kind of, right? Okay. Now, as adults, we know those are feelings. They're real feelings, but that's not love. You're, you've confused a fact, the fact of love, with these kind of very powerful feelings that you might be feeling at the moment. Feelings can lead you astray. So, what we wanna do is, and what I tell my Mormon friends is, because we can't adjudicate feelings, the 12-year-old will tell you she's in love and she'll say that you don't know what you're talking about if you tell her she's not in love. All we can do is adjudicate on the facts that we know. So let's look at the Bible and let's look at the Book of Mormon. Let's weigh the evidence for each. And it seems to me that if it's true, it will correspond with reality. Another issue that we talk about is this eternal progression. Uh, Many Mormons who come up to me will tell me, you know, we believe in the same God as you. We believe in the God exists yesterday, today, and forever. Same God as you. And I've had this happen on more than one occasion. I usually stop them and say, wait a minute. I thought you held to a law of eternal progression. Did not your prophet say, as God now is man, or as man now is, God once was, and as God now is, man may become? Well, if that's true, then God was once a human, which means he wasn't God. Everything that makes God God and us not God was true of him at that point. How is he the same yesterday, today, and forever? How does that work? If you affirm God the same yesterday, today, and forever, you're not affirming the Mormon God. But you see, they've they've caught themselves in a contradiction at that point. Um, The whole problem of eternal progression, plus the idea that Mormonism, that this, this, this idea that we extend eternally, it also has an eternal past. And the problem with that is what we call an infinite regress. The idea of an infinite regress means that, you know, it's the idea of what does the earth rest on, and the Hindu man says, well, it's the elephant on the back of a turtle. Okay, well, what's the turtle standing on? Well, he's standing on another turtle. Well, what's that turtle standing on? Well, another turtle. And all of a sudden, you start going backwards and backwards, and you find out it's turtles all the way down. Well, that's not an answer anymore, because there's no starting point. You, you've done what they call an infinite regress. You've just kept pushed the question back to one turtle further, and you'll never get started. The idea of infinite or, or eternal progression is... If you work your way backwards, it's also an infinite regress. It's the same reason we know that the universe came into existence at some point in time ago because it couldn't have existed eternally in the past is the same answer that you can tell the Mormon uh, missionaries that they couldn't have uh, had this pattern of eternal progression coming along in the past. Okay. Um, Family relationships, I just want to mention this because this does come up in conversation a lot. A lot of Mormons will, will say, but we, we're more passionate about our families. You know, I heard one uh, elder in the Mormon church say, if heaven were, me, were to mean me not being with my wife, I don't think that's heaven. How could I not be with a woman I love forever? You, I don't know if you've experienced this or not, but this discussion comes up quite a bit. And I usually turn it around on them and I say, well, I think your concept of heaven is a little thin. What do you mean? I think your concept of relationship is too narrow. Okay, you're taking the experiences that you have now with your wife, which are great, and you're saying that's the best experience you could ever have with an individual. The Bible says that there's one who sticks closer than a brother, that Jesus, we will know him as, as we are known. That we can have an intimate deep fellowship with him closer than we've ever had with any human being including our husband and wife and not just with Jesus because we will know as we have been known we will know others in that same way we will have a deeper more intimate fellowship not with our not only with our wife in the future that is to come but with all believers in the future that is to come. That is why Jesus said in heaven there is neither marriage nor given in marriage because there is a closeness that supersedes that. And if you're limiting your heavenly experience to an earthly marriage, does that mean that in heaven your wife's going to, you know, bug, hey, you didn't take out the garbage today. Put your socks up off the floor. What's the matter with you? I'm trying to keep the cloud clean. You know, is, is that what heaven's going to be? I mean, is that really as, as small as your heaven is? Uh, I, think, I think we can, we can talk about it. And, and again, that's maybe a secondary idea, but the, but the idea holds. Lastly, no matter who's at your door, try to continue the conversation. You'll never be able to eat this elephant in all one session. Don't be afraid when they bring up something to say, you know, that's a new one on me. I've not heard that. Can I find out an answer for you? Can we meet back again next week? Make sure you set a time and a date because if they say, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to you, chances are you won't see them again. Try to put the question back to them in plain language. Let me see if I understand you right because I think this is an important question. It's an interesting question and one worthy of my time. Be gracious. Uh, Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be gr- with grace as though seasoned with salt. Proverbs 16:26: the wise in heart will be called understanding, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. And even our famous apologetics verse in 1 Peter 3, right? always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks and give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Do not forget those last two fr- phrases. And be confident, 2 Timothy 1.7, if you wanna put something right by your front door before you answer it, this is the verse, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of sound mind. I'll just tell you this one story and then we'll open it up for questions. Jehovah's Witness came to my door a few years ago, knocked on the door, and he said, hi, I'm with the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, and I'd like to spend a few minutes talking to you. I said, wow, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm familiar with your organization. I do a little bit of you know, work in comparative religions. Um, let me ask you a question. You, you go door to door a lot, don't you? Yeah, every week. That's, wow, you know, that's, that's really laudable that you would step out for your faith that way. I wish more people who hold to historic Christianity would step out for their faith the way, and put in the time the way you're putting in the time for your faith. I, you must hear a lot of questions or a lot of reasons why people believe things, don't you? Because I've heard so many. It's like, well, you know, I was raised in this religion. So I can't abandon, my parents would be so disappointed if I abandoned it, I have to believe this way, right? Or we're in America, we all have to be Christians. Or, you know, it works for me. This, I'm comfortable in it, it works for me, this is, this, this. Okay, let's agree that those are terrible reasons to believe something. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, the only good reason to believe anything is if it's true. Even if it's a nice belief, Santa Claus. So cute. Everybody teeths it, right? Everybody loves Santa. You gotta love Santa. And to tell you the truth, the kids have some good reasons to believe in Santa. They've heard it from an authority figure. They've got some empirical evidence. The cookies are gone, the milk's drunk, right? There's presents under the tree. There's some scientific data coming back at them. Um, And who's it gonna hurt? Well, what do you think of a 37-year-old man who believes in Santa? Are you gonna sit next to that guy on the plane? No, why? Because what he believes is not true. Even if it's a nice belief, what he believes is not true. Let's agree that the only good reason to believe anything is if it's true. Okay, I buy that. Great. Now I've looked at the Watchtower's history a little bit and you guys have taught on a lot of things. You've taught on, you know, it used to be that that blood transfusions were okay and then you recanted on that. Actually, you used to celebrate Christmas and you recanted on that. There's been a lot of things that you've changed your mind on. Again, I'm p- picking an end point, but I'm not getting there yet. I'm not revealing my hand. He goes, well, those are, you know... Uh, I said, matter of fact, there's also been a lot of disagreement as to when Jesus was going to come back. 1914, 1918, 1925. Well, well, you've got to understand that we're merely men, and men can make mistakes. I bel- You know what? I'm not going to press you on that. I will agree with you completely. Men can make mistakes. But you also have denied the historic Christian position of Jesus being the second person of the Godhead of the Trinity, a position the church has held since its inception. What if they're mistaken on that? What do you mean? What if in a hundred years from now, after you're dead and gone, the church recants on that like it's recanted on all these other things? Well, I don't think that would happen, but it could. Shouldn't we look at the evidence for that? Would you believe in historic Christianity if I can show you that the church is wrong and one day they may recant? Well, I don't think that that will ever happen, but if I can show you, would you, would you consider dropping the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society as your authority? He goes, well, let me tell you, I've been in the Watchtower Society for a long time. It's given order to my life, it's given meaning to my life. And I said, wait a minute, didn't we just agree that those were terrible reasons to believe something? And he literally went, and he goes, he, it's like he caught me in some kind of word game. You could just see his, his wheels spinning, right? And I didn't want to, I mean, it's not, the, not time to crush the guy. So he said, well, you, you know, I just want you to think about that. I'd love for you to come back. Let's talk about it. Let's see what we can do to work this out. But, but you've just told me one thing, and yet you're holding to something else. Shouldn't we believe what's true? So we cordially shook hands. Of course, he never came back. Um, unfortunately, but i pray that we gave him something to think about. And that's all we need to do. Let the Spirit do his work. Maybe, maybe he's met somebody else who will deliver the next step in watering that seed. I don't know. If the opportunity's there, you know, I would ask him in. But my, I, I didn't want to just kill it. I didn't want to just thump him over the head. I want to bring him to a knowledge of the truth. We want to do it with gentleness and reverence. And that's what I pray that you all do. So, before the knock, get ready. When walking to the door, pick your target. Know where the, where the curveballs may be at. Make sure you're prepared for those. Answer the door. Engage in the conversation and... Try to continue it always with prayer, as Paul says, always with gentleness and reverence. Okay, I think we have a few minutes for questions before I have to turn you off, so I can do one or two. Let me know uh, if anyone has anything. Yes, sir. Multiple gods because everybody becomes a god who's faithful. They're, they're a little fuzzy on that. And I actually talked to one person who said it might be, you know, here's the other thing that I've always had a problem with Mormonism. Okay, I can see where the Father works, and it's almost like Jesus is a special exception because we have the Father and Jesus, right? So we maybe needed Jesus as our Savior so he doesn't get the God of his own planet. He kind of shares it with the Father. Where's the Holy Spirit fit in? How come he's a God but he doesn't, how does, how does that work in the Mormon plan of eternal progression? Um, they answer me, well, sometimes you can have two gods share a planet or three gods share a planet, so it's not necessary that each god, it's not a one-to-one correlation at all times. So I'm like, well, oh, that's interesting, that's new. But, uh, but they don't say. They're a little vague on that. They're a little unclear. When it comes to especially issues of, like that, they haven't defined it. They, they, most Mormons that I've talked to said, well, I let God worry about that stuff. I mean, literally, as long as I'm part of the club as long as I have my badge and I'm under that right umbrella, that's good enough for me. I felt the burning in the bosom, that's all I need to do. I don't need to ask any more questions. And that's, that seems to be the response. So, it's a good question though. Other questions? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, uh, comment. Um, I've uh, dealt with a lot of young Mormon missionaries. The mm-hmm. best way to get their attention is to buy over for lunch. Those guys lucky. Guys <laughs> Yeah, especially if you have, like, good food and cookies afterwards, yeah. I <laughs> mean, yeah, that, that's being a winsome witness. I completely agree. Okay, any other questions that I can take real quick? And I'll let you guys all... Oh, yes, ma'am. Uh, just wondering, but, you just as a that's a good question, and i used the word a couple of times, and I know that there's, there's some um, dispute about it. There's a theological cult, there's sociological cults. Most of the time when the press uses the word cult, they're thinking like David Koresh in a compound, and everybody's gonna commit suicide or drink some Kool-Aid or things like that. Um, Well, that's the way the press has been using it. Prior to that, prior to that last 30 years or so, ever since Jonestown, I think, is when that switched, the cult has always been understood from a Christian perspective as a deviation from a normal belief claiming special knowledge. So the way I've explained it to another gentleman is, you know, you have a fence to, for an area, there's a land rush, and you put a fence that's a border that says, okay, this is country A, and this is country B, and that border defines us. When another country says, no, 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 the fence perimeter should be way out here, that's actually, your land is actually my land, okay? That's where you become a cult, when they start to negate the differences, but still claim the label. So Mormonism negates all of the essential aspects of Christianity, but they still want to claim to be Christian. We're still Christian. We're still a Christian denomination, which again makes me fuzzy because if, if all of those religions were an abomination, you know, as Joseph Smith supposedly prayed, you should join none of them. They're all an abomination to me. Then why would you want to be labeled like that? I mean, I wouldn't want to be called a Christian pagan. No, I'm a pagan, too. I'm just a Christian pagan. You know, that doesn't make any sense. It seems to me that you'd want to have some separation. But they don't, yeah, I would say the word cult means a deviation from the essentials of Christianity while still claiming to be Christian. So both the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons claim to be Christian, yet they don't want to adhere to any of the basic essentials, any of the, the, the things that define what Christianity is. They want to keep moving the borders. Does that help? Okay. All right, you guys better go and see JP, because he's better than me. Thanks. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.